This is a Federal News Network podcast. My next guest enlisted in the Marine Corps back in the 1980s and became one of its first female combat officers. Later, she held a series of increasingly responsible jobs connected to military manpower and readiness. Now she's the first ever executive director of U.S. Naval Forces for Europe and Africa and one of this year's distinguished senior executives in the Presidential Rank Award program. Juliette Baylor joins me now. Ms. Baylor, good to have you on. Thank you. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. And an impressive career you've had, but I I want to start at the end here. And you are the first ever executive director of U.S. military forces. That sounds like you order around admirals, but probably not. So (laughs) what is that job? So I work side by side with the admirals. So I'm the senior civilian, as you mentioned, for U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa. And what we are is we're the naval component for European Command and Africa Command. We have about 43,000 people, ships, aircraft, and submarines operating every day throughout the Atlantic, the Mediterranean, up in the high north, in the Baltic, and all the way around Africa every day. And also, with regard to Navy, we are one of the Navy's three four-star fleet headquarters, the other two, one being in Norfolk, Virginia, and Pacific Fleet being out in Hawaii. So that's who we are, but more specifically to your question about the perpetual question of what does the executive director do? My job as the executive director is to lead our efforts in future years, defense planning, resource programming, investment strategy. But I tell people in the simplest of terms, I'm the money people things person and the chief integrator for the command. So I sit as the senior civilian next to the commanders and help with those things. So do you oversee, say, everything from the POM process early on through the budget execution? Precisely. So do we have the Rice host nation agreements? Is our programming and budgeting and POM submissions aligned with what we're trying to do? As operations change and the combatant commanders give us new mission sets and things change, are we linked in back with the CNO staff, the Secretary of the Navy staff, and all of those corporate forums. And that's kind of an expansion of the types of jobs you've held successively throughout your career, which have been concerned with manpower and readiness and human capital policy, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah, it's a little bit different than what I've been doing for about the past 10 years. But as the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Manpower Personnel and Training, the POM world is it's pretty much the same wherever you go. One of the reasons they wanted this position out here As you can imagine, the pace is pretty high and we're very operationally focused. And so just like everyone has that challenge of the urgent daily requirements, you know, taking time away from the strategic planning that you need to do. It's really magnified out here by the gravitational pull of current ops. And so, you know, when they offered me the chance to do something a little bit different out of my bailiwick, uh, it was a new position, the opportunity to kind of create something new. I had to jump at it. Got it. And uh, just going back a little bit in history, because we could talk about that job for hours, you have done, according to the long list of bullet points in your career accomplishments in your submission for the uh, Presidential Rank Awards, a lot of work with respect to ensuring equality of treatment of, say, military members with same-sex spouses, women, that kind of thing. Uh, Tell us your thinking there. So maybe a little bit of story to how I got there, and I think maybe we'll talk about it. When I was working in the Senate for Senator Jim Webb, he became the chairman of the personnel committee. I was an engineer, so I didn't do personnel, but that's sort of how I got into the the people business. 
And, and I didn't really understand it that well, but I remember he told me, if you want to do something important, you want to do something that matters and changes the Department of Defense, you have to do people policy. And at that time was when we had the surge in Iraq. Uh, we had the issues with Walter Reed. That's when the conversations about women in combat and the removal of the direct ground combat exclusion started in earnest. The repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So it was during that kind of several year period when all of those things started to be discussed. And I found it just a fascinating policy area. And really, that is central to everything the military tries to do, as Senator Webb pointed out and well understood and as seems to be driving your career, is that you got to start with the people. Absolutely. And I think, as you mentioned, I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old, back when it was still against the law for women to be in combat roles. And uh, as I got promoted, I was a staff sergeant. We had the first Gulf War and these Washington, D.C. policies were changing. I didn't understand what they were. All I knew is I couldn't shoot the rifle or I couldn't go with my platoon to Iraq because of these different things. Fast forward, I was uh, commissioned as one of the first female combat engineers when I was commissioned the same year that the Navy opened ships and combat aircraft. The Marine Corps opened combat engineers to women. And so I was one of the first year group. Again, never having worked in Washington, D.C., it was you know, having those experiences as an enlisted Marine and then an officer really kind of shaped when I had the opportunity to lead those efforts for the Department of Defense on, you know, how do we actually have policies that make sense given the realities of how we operate today? We're speaking with Juliet Baylor. She's executive director of U.S. Naval Forces for Europe and Africa and one of this year's distinguished senior executives in the Presidential Rank Award program. And I guess working in Washington after having been in those operational and really there on the ground, it must be something to overcome the disconnect between the politicians sometimes and the reality of the world outside of the Beltway. Sometimes. I, I will tell you my opportunity. I, I, I was a, when I retired from the Marine Corps, I was a GS-14 and then a GS-15. I, I applied and was selected for the Congressional Fellowship. That was, that was my first introduction to the Hill. And then Senator Webb offered me a permanent job, which is how I ended up working on the Hill as a, as a Senate staffer. You know, I found you get below that level and, and the, on the Senate Armed Services Committee and the, the professional staffers and you know, those people are, are really dedicated, being able to watch people like Senator John McCain and, and Senator Webb and kind of really look at really what are the real needs, the operational needs of the Department of Defense and watching the interaction of the legislative branch and, and looking at the Department of Defense from the outside. Uh, it, it was really fascinating. And you have some pretty cool technical chops. I mean, this goes back a ways, but you were a Korean cryptologic linguist, cryptology, <laughs> linguist and Korean. That sounds like a heavy lift. Yeah, I was 17 years old. So I took the defense language aptitude battery, and apparently I had an aptitude for, for languages. So that was the occupation that the Marine Corps gave me. I, my mother is Filipino, so I did not know Korean, but they sent me to the Defense Language Institute where I learned Korean and then off to some other schools to learn the more technical intelligence aspects of the job. But again, my very first duty station uh, was Korea, where I got to be collecting intelligence on the DMZ right on the border there with North Korea as a young 19 and 20 year old. I think back and kind of crazy where you end up. <laughs> sure. So the basic question then, you've been in the federal sphere your entire life since 17 years old and so many different rules. What's your impression of, of federal life and would you recommend it for people? I absolutely would, as demonstrated by the fact that I've been doing it for 36 plus years. 
you know, it depends on certainly what your personality is. I, I talk to a lot of young people, GSs, who are kind of at crossroads trying to figure out what do they want to do next and where do they want to go. And one of the personal lessons I learned when working on the Hill is I really actually, I loved it, but I learned I'm not a legislative branch person. I learned a lot about my style and I learned that I'm an executive branch person. I, I'm the kind of person that likes to roll my sleeves on to dig in, to really tear apart a problem and, and work things through. The legislative branch is more oversight. It's a little bit quicker moving, broader portfolio and wider. And so I tell people that was enlightening for me because it led me to what kind of work do you really want to do? Because at the end of the day, you can have this portfolio or that portfolio, but it's the work. If the work gets you up in the morning and solving those types of challenges is what you like to do. I love it. And uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. And from 1984 to now, a lot of time has passed. A lot of cultural change has happened in the country. As a female executive and someone who, again, has the chops to have been a combat engineer for the Marine Corps, an officer, do you find that it's easier for women now than it was in 1984? I think so. Certainly where you sit is where you stand. So having the perspective that I have, I think we have come a long way. We have more work to be done. Um, but if you look at the work that we did on, on doing away with those outdated combat exclusion policies, we had always looked at opening positions and opportunities to women or, or groups of people by exception. And we would say, should we do this? And we should, would weigh the pros and cons. But for that effort, we flipped that proposition on its head. And we said, let's make the assumption that everything should be open and that we will close things by exception only. And when we flipped the way that we looked at that problem set, it really made it clear and it, it took a lot of the emotion out of the argument. And uh, again, any woman can serve in any job anywhere in the Department of Defense based solely on her abilities and training. And uh, that says a lot. As far as being in the senior executive service as well, I've had wonderful opportunities. This is my sixth senior executive job, and I have been uh, so wonderfully surprised and supported by all my leaders. I mean, we're really just looking for people that can solve problems. And by the way, did you ever get to finally fire that rifle? I, <laughs> I absolutely did um, when I was a sergeant. And actually, my husband is a retired Army Special Forces officer. And, and I joke that uh, occasionally I could even sh outshoot him with his own weapons. So. so sometimes you and he go over to the range just to test your chops. We do. We do. Absolutely. All right. Juliette Baylor is the executive director of U.S. Naval Forces for Europe and Africa and one of this year's distinguished senior executives in the Presidential Rank Award program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. It's a great pleasure to be here and an honor to get this award. I'm hard to hard to talk about it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember 
looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women, Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.